So Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Once again, dear brethren, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray now that your word would chase away the fog of distraction as its ministry is attended by the Holy Spirit, that you would quiet and settle our minds, that you would give us attention and focus and devotion to your most precious word as it is opened and read and proclaimed and and unfolded before us and in our hearts. Lord, we know that we have a thousand and one different things competing for our attention and attempting to distract us this night. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this Lord's Day evening when we may come away even for just a little while for this hour or so and get to worship you and the company of your people as the pages of Holy Scripture are spread before us that we might give attention to the things of eternity, that we might give you the worship that you are due, that you might deal with our souls rightly. Lord, bless this time that we have together. May your spirit minister powerfully to us for the good of our souls and bodies, both now and for eternity. And truly, may Jesus Christ be glorified. Amen. Those of us who love our homeland, the United States of America, have been living in quite unusual times for the past 15 years or so. Uh, I was about 13 years old when the tragedies of September 11th happened. And that moment is likely the defining moment, at least one of the defining moments for my generation, much like Pearl Harbor was the defining moment, or at least one of the defining moments for the greatest generation. And given the horrific attacks on our nation's largest city, the hatred of Western values, and the subsequent terror attacks around the world, for a long time, it seemed that America's greatest threats lay without our borders, outside our borders. 
The enemies were on the outside, and they wanted to destroy us. Many of us thought terrorist organizations, radical Islam, foreign enemies, and so forth, those were the problem. Many of us, myself included, believed that America, while having her own share of problems, was still fundamentally sound within. These horrific tragedies had served to unite us and bring us together despite our differences, and we saw America at her best in those days and what she could be with a united, patriotic, and positive populace. But in recent years, it seems the perspective has shifted. We do have threats from without, but the greater danger seems to be from within our own citizenry. Now, perhaps it's been this way for far longer, but many of us are just now getting around to noticing it. A sexual revolution that wants to throw off any residual social guardrails, a functional moral anarchy, a culture of sexual exploitation of women and young children, a push for erotic liberty that would push religious liberty and liberty of conscience to the sidelines, and perhaps even render such constitutional freedoms as worthy of punishment. A bloated bureaucracy, a nation where books and freedom of thought are blacklisted, but who cares, because most Americans don't even read one book per year. A tax-glutted, debt-driven economy where categories of human identity that were standard yesterday are now tantamount to hate crimes today. All of these things, all of these things are tearing at the fabric of our society, and we are wondering if there will be anything left of this civilization or if we are merely descending into barbaric anarchy. Where is our real threat, from inside or outside? Despite the shifts that we've seen, the fair, I think the fair answer is still both. All of those internal threats that we just listed are true, but so are drug lords smuggling over our borders, hothead dictators with nuclear weapons, terrorist organizations, and so forth. On any given day of the week, it just depends which threat is more acute, the threat from within or the threat from without. All of that to say, the status quo of America serves, I think, as a reasonable analogy to the life of the church. That is, the church, in every age, has always faced two kinds of threats, internal and external. External threats from an opposing world, false religions and false ideologies that reject the gospel message, but also internal threats from the unbelief and spiritual failures of the people of God. And depending on the day of the week, depending on the circumstances, sometimes it seems that the internal threats are greater, and sometimes it seems that the external threats are greater. Well, here in Exodus chapter 17, we see both. Uh, Next time, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we'll look at some of the external threats in verses 8 through 16. But tonight, in the first half of the chapter, we're going to be thinking, thinking about those inner problems, those inner temptations to unfaithfulness that perennially plague the people of God. We must always hold 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, at the forefront of our minds. Judgment begins with the household of God. Judgment begins with the household of God. It's a real temptation for us, given our current societal moment, to see our challenge as a church and our response as always in response to those problems out there. Why is the church the way she is these days? Well, it's because of American society. It's because of the government. It's because of Islam. It's because of the sexual revolution, etc., etc., etc. And not to discount those things, but if we are not careful, we'll ignore or overlook the sin in our own hearts and in our own lives. 
These things need to be held in tension and analyzed in tension. And so that's what we want to do tonight with the help of Exodus 17. How is the church under pressure from within and from without? So here in verses 1 through 7, we want to look at the internal threats to the spiritual health of God's people and then see how the Lord responds to it. In these opening verses, there are essentially three sinful symptoms. But underlying all of those symptoms, we can probe further to deep heart problems. So three problems, three mistakes, which are indicative of deeper heart, deeper soul sins. Three things, wrong-headed anger, wrong-headed doubt, and then a wrongly understood relation. Wrong-headed anger, secondly, wrong-headed doubt, and then thirdly, a wrongly understood relation. So the first thing, let's think about wrong-headed anger. That's the surface symptom that we see in tonight's passage, especially in those first four verses. Anger. Quarreling, it says in the ESV text, which I'm using tonight, there in verse 2, quarreling. Out of Egypt, on their way to Canaan, on their way to the promised land, are the children of Israel twice already, as we've been studying these passages post-Exodus, post the Exodus moment, post Red Sea crossing. Twice already we've seen the children of Israel grumbling to Moses about the food and drink that's been supplied to them. So back in chapter 15, when they come to the water in Mara, they find bitter water that's foul to the taste, and they complain. And the Lord in his mercy and in his forbearance with them, he turns the bitter water sweet. And then in chapter 16, they complain again. This time there's not enough food to eat. And so God, rich in patience, again, not only does he not punish them, not only does he do something neutral by not striking them in judgment, but he goes further and he does something graciously positive for this griping mass. He supplies them bread from heaven, manna every morning and quail every evening. And we've been thinking along at this tendency within Israel, this unfortunate pattern that we've seen within them. Over and over again, they've seen God's miracles. We saw the plagues, and you delivered us. You smote the house of Egypt. You smote, laid waste to the house of Pharaoh. You parted the waters of the Red Sea. We came through on dry land. You've led us by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And yet, despite all of that, this time, surely the Lord's going to lead us out into the wilderness And we will be stranded and left to fend for ourselves. Miracle after miracle after miracle to lead us out. But now, now we'll be left to starve. And we laugh at that. (laughs) How silly, how foolish, how stupid can Israel be to think that God has done thus and so and thus and so only to abandon them at the last second. And yet all along we've seen that this is but a mirror, a diagnostic of our own heart tendency, isn't it? And we think, well, maybe they'll learn their lesson. I will gripe at the Lord two times, but not a third time. Alas. Here we come to Rephidim, and there is no water for them. Now, Rephidim, according to the archaeologists, was another oasis, another water source. The Israelites were tired. They were no doubt thirsty from their journey, and they come expecting rest and refreshment and water. And for whatever reason, as they come to this Rephidim oasis, their waters have dried up, and they are greatly disappointed. So, verse 2, they quarrel with Moses. Give us water to drink. The word quarrel there is important. It tells us that there's actually more going on here than their usual grumbling, their usual 
griping and dissatisfaction that we've seen in the past several chapters. One commentator tells us that it is a word, the word quarreling, that was used in legal contexts in the ancient Near East to articulate a grievance or a problem that might eventuate in a lawsuit if it's not resolved. Hence the use of the word later on of test, right? testing the Lord, testing and trying, testing by trial. That's why it gets used there at the end. As the people of Israel tested the Lord there in verse 7. That's what the Hebrews are doing here. They're not merely grumping around in their usual mopey discontent, feeling sorry for themselves, that kind of manner. But now, now they're filing suit, so to speak, as one man put it, seeking to impeach Moses. It's a vote of no confidence in the appointed mediator that God has given them. Moses gives them a stern rebuttal. He gives them a reality check in verse 2. Notice their answer in verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now notice the first person plural pronouns there. Why did you bring us up to kill us, our children, and our livestock? Now most of your English translations will handle the text that way, which I think is a fine editorial judgment call on the part of the editors. But if you have your Hebrew Old Testaments here with you tonight, which I know all of you do, and you were to dig back into the original Hebrew, this is how it is worded, very woodenly, like this. The people of children of Israel saying to Moses, For what is this, that you brought us out of Egypt to kill me and my children and my livestock with thirst? Did you see? This is, this is not some group consensus of a grievance against Moses, not at all. This is a mob protest. What they really say is, you brought me up to kill me, my children and my livestock, Moses. And when things get hard, each one, each member of the nation of Israel can only think about himself. And when Moses cries out to God for help in verse 4, he tells us just how dangerous things are. Lord, they're ready to stone me. There's an impending danger. It's about to happen. These people are absolutely livid. They are furious with Moses. But as verse 2 makes clear, as Moses responds, actually their real complaint ought not to be brought against Moses at all. Their anger, unbalanced though it is, unrighteous, sinful though it is, misguided though it is, it is directed at the wrong source. It is mistaken. It is wrong-headed. It is ill-directed. It is the Lord with whom they have a real quarrel. He's the one, after all, who brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness on this journey. Perhaps their rage and indignation seem to them more acceptable by bringing it against Moses than against God. No one would have the audacity to suggest a lawsuit against God Almighty. No, no. Ah, but Moses, we can see right through. We'll get him. But Moses can see right through them. For all their angst toward him, he knows that their real anger is Godward. Their discontent, their malice even perhaps, is directed towards God. Wrong-headed anger. Scripture is always a mirror. It's one of the wonderful things about Holy Scripture. And not so much a mirror to the face, but to the heart. Could it be that for some of us, our anger, our temper, our irrational outbursts, whether that irrationality is ever vocalized with our mouths and tongues, or whether it's merely played out in our minds, and we have those arguments with other people, that we always seem to win. 
Could it be that our hot-headed reactions have less to do with the people around us and the way that they've let us down, the way that other people have frustrated us, the way that other people have inconvenienced us? Could it be that it has more to do with our heart's disposition toward our God? We need to ask the question as we stare at ourselves in the spiritual mirror of Holy Scripture, do we trust him? Put it in the first person singular, do I trust him? When his fatherly hand of love and discipline comes around because of some sin and error in my life, in our life, are we submitting? Could it be that our snapping and backbiting and discontent and grumbling is actually really expressive, not so much of irritation with you, but of a deeper Godward sickness in our soul? There's wrong-headed anger. That's the first thing. But then that brings us to the second thing. Notice what's behind their wrong-headed anger, their God-word angst. It's actually wrong-headed doubt. That's the second thing, wrong-headed doubt. One commentator says this, Here in this text, there is one sinful surface-level action, anger, but actually three spiritual conditions, each one further rooted in the other. That is, there are three levels of this same problem. In other words, at, at the surface level... Visually, we see the Hebrews acting in anger. They're mouthing off to Moses. They're angry towards him. But underlying that anger, one level down, it's rooted in doubt. Anger towards God that is rooted in doubt towards God. Verse 7. They tested the Lord, Moses said, by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now think about that. That is an absolutely stunning question. Stunning in the most dreadful of senses, not stunning in a lovely sense, stunning in the most dreadful of senses. The God who had unleashed the plagues of wrath upon the mightiest world empire, who freed his enslaved people from 400 years of bondage, who smote the firstborn of all Egypt via the Passover angel of death, who split the waters of the sea and led them through on dry ground, who struck down Pharaoh's mighty armies, who protected the Israelites. He rained bread from the sky, Holy Scripture says, to fill their bellies. He turned bitter water sweet to slake their thirst. He shelters them with his tangible presence, a pillar of cloud shading them from that hot desert beating sun by day, a tower of blazing fire by night illumining the dark road ahead of them. And they have the gall. They have the foolish audacity to ask, is the Lord among us or not? It sounds to us ghastly, boneheaded and stupid even. What a preposterous thing for these Hebrews to say. And yet it is not an unfamiliar sentiment and thought and fear that creeps into the mind and is entertained in the heart of God's children. In other words, there are many of us Christians who struggle with assurance, who wonder if God is really with them because we reason and we wrestle with with the conditions that we are enduring, with the circumstances of our life that God and his providence has brought about, we grapple with these realities so poorly that we react with a kind of practical atheism. I love how one pastor put it. He says this, Here's how it goes in our minds. My needs trump all other arguments. The only thing that will do to demonstrate to me that God is with me right now is that he meets my need in precisely the manner in which I require him to do. All his past kindnesses to me no longer matter. 
All the ways that he's answered my cries and never yet once showed himself to be unfaithful, those things must be ruled out as irrelevant. He must do what I deem I most need, and he must do it on my terms according to my timetable, or I will conclude that he's not with me at all. Close quote. Dreadful, isn't it? Now, we may never be so bold as to put it quite like that in our prayer requests or our prayer meetings or our devotions, but isn't that how we're tempted to think? It should shame us, brothers and sisters. I know God has been good, but unless God heals this loved one from disease, then he's not truly good. I know God has been merciful before, but unless God converts my loved one to Christianity before they die, I don't know that he's loving Parents, I know, I know that God has been immeasurably kind, but if anything, anything ever happens to my children, I don't know if I can keep looking to him. I've entertained that thought. It's to my shame. And it should shame us that we so easily forget his past faithfulness. Exodus 17 and the fickle spirituality of Israel is but a mirror to convict us. Because brethren... Brothers and sisters, beloved, has he ever failed to keep his promises? Has he ever had one falling word? We we read this passage and we think, if only Israel had looked up at the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and seen that the Lord is with them, that would have solved so much. Yes, yes, it would have. And so it is with us. What we must do now is look up and look to Christ. And remember his words, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, lo, even unto the end of the age. We must look back and we must see again and again and again how in sunny days, how in dark nights of the soul, how in joy and in crisis and in trial, the Lord has proven himself faithful, patient, kind. We must take stock of those reasons to bolster our faith to fight off unbelief. I don't know if there's ever going to be a season in our sanctification where we come to a stage where we don't ever have to stop fighting off unbelief. We're always fighting off unbelief. Take stock of the Lord's past mercies for present battles. Take stock of the Lord's past mercies for future skirmishes. Load your arsenal with the mercies and graces of God. You know, Psalm 95 memorializes this dark day in posterity, in Holy Scripture. So dreadful is this moment. So dreadful is this moment of of griping and grumbling and a, a kind of functional lawsuit against Moses and against Yahweh. So dreadful is this moment that Moses renames the location Masa and Meribah. Masa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. So Israel, as she's opening up, you know, you have these, if you still, those of us who still have paper maps in the desk drawer, you pull out your Rand McNally atlas and you you open up the, the cartography of your homeland of Israel and staring you in the face for the rest of your years on this earth are these two little dots on the roadway where you recount your sojourn through the promised land and forever and ever there's these little spots or villages named Masa and Meribah. They will forever remember this terrible day of the soul as their own map, their own cartography indicts them. Hebrews chapter 3 takes up Psalm 95. And Hebrews chapter 3 and Psalm 95, they take that lesson of Exodus 17 and they warn us with it, don't they? Remember? 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But rather, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's one of the reasons why we need each other, to keep on exhorting each other when wicked, dark, ugly doubt seeks to cloud all of our sensibilities and reason, when it seeks to cloud even the thought processes of the soul, if we can put it that way, how we need one another to exhort one another, so long as it's called today, that we would not have that evil, unbelieving heart, that we would not fall away from the living God, but we would keep pressing on, keep clinging on. I need you and you need me, and we need one another to keep on striving, persevering. So there is wrong-headed anger. That's the first thing. And it's actually rooted in a wrong-headed doubt. That's the second thing. And then here's the deepest layer. This brings us to our final point. The root of the wrong-headed doubt is actually a wrongly understood relation. The Hebrews have misunderstood their relationship to God. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So they are obeying, they are moving through the wilderness in obedience to the commandment which God has communicated to them through Moses, his prophet. God's word guides their steps. He says, march this way, and march in this manner, and march in this direction, and they do. So good so far. But yet as soon as they couldn't get water, a torrent of anger rooted in unbelief is unleashed. So verse 1 tells us that they are obeying. And yet if you look at verse 3 and verse 7, the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 7, both of those are indicative of Israel's doubt and unbelief toward God. We're doing what God says, but we don't actually think he's going to make good on what he promised. They were obeying without trusting. Do you see that? Another way of putting it is that they were obeying the letter of the commandment, without actually believing the power or the promise that lies behind the commandment. Obedience, without any trust in grace or providence, is a terrible place to be. Obedience without faith. Obedience and good works are an absolutely essential part of the Christian life. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We live in a horrendously antinomian age that likes to say that Christian living and holiness doesn't matter. It does. They don't earn justification, but they do evidence, good works do evidence a new heart. That is fundamental. But I love precision. When did we ever allow for the divorcing of obedience from trust? As if they could be bifurcated, and you could get one without the other. When I was a boy, I had a church camp counselor. His name was Rod, is Rod Sheldon. And Rod had a wonderful phrase. He said, James, the book of James reminds us that faith without works is dead. But we must also remember that works without faith is dread. Works without faith is dread. Or in the words of the old gospel song, trust and obey. Trust and obey. We see a bare compliance here in Israel without first a dependence on the promises of God and a dependence on the provision of God. And so consequently, they fall apart. They absolutely fall apart when things get difficult and unbelief and anger take over. I'm doing the motions, Lord, but I don't believe that there's really anything to it or that you're going to do anything with it. 
all duty without hope, all obligation without expectation of God's provision. That's no way to live the Christian life. And it's a sure path to despair. No, the life of God's people is the way of trusting in the promises of his constant care and provision. My grace, he says, is sufficient for you. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We obey God's commands. Oh, yes. Yes, we obey God's commands. But we keep them resting on God's own commitment to his people. We keep on. We press on. We strive on because we are being kept in the grip of his grace. Jude verse 21 and verse 24, you know these well, I hope. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior and so forth. Obedience, brothers and sisters, springs forth from a trusting faith, from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, from a belief, from a trust in God's word. Belief, if I can put it this way, yields forth obedience. And our Israelite friends have that equation entirely inverted. (laughs) They've got the obedience without the belief. So the root of their problem is a wrongly understood relation with God. But note God's response. Verses 5 and 6, he tells Moses to gather the elders together to take the staff in his hand to hold it in front of the people at the rock of Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Now remember now that staff was the staff used in judgment during the plagues upon Egypt. So this is a serious moment. You can almost imagine the fearful silence coming upon the Hebrews. He's got that staff in his hand. I remember what happened last time that staff was in his hand. He smote Egypt with it. God threw him. Is he he now going to take the elders away to judgment? That's what our sinfulness deserves. Our arrogance and our hubris and our, our anger towards God. God's people should be struck. That is what they have earned. But in his wrath, God remembers mercy. Verse 6, Moses lifts up the staff. He brings it down on the rock and it's broken in two and a spring of water gushes forth. And there God quenches the thirst of his people. Oh, yet again. They deserve wrath. And what does he give them? Streams of water to quench their thirst. Quite the opposite of what they deserve. Verse 6 tells us that God himself is standing before Moses upon the rock. It's a strange thing, one commentator notes. Because typically, the inferior or the servant stands before the master. So picture a king on his throne and he says, come, stand before me. But here is God the Lord standing before Moses as though... God were the servant and Moses were the master. And the staff formerly used in judgment does not destroy the wicked people, but instead supplies them with mercy. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is a gospel connection that we don't even have to get creative with because the Bible itself provides us that connection. Remember Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. He speaks of the Hebrews in the wilderness and he says, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. 
He was, Christ was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and from him flows living water to all who believe. The rock was struck. Judgment did not fall in Israel, but rather grace and provision flowed from a shattered rock. Your sin and my sin, our hell-bound, hell-deserving sin, the rock which was Christ was slain for us. He was stricken, and from that slain body and from Calvary's cross flows mercy, grace, and provision flowing from that shattered rock to all who would believe. This is how the Lord responds to us his children, in mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous thing that we're studying this text tonight as we think about all the things that God's people are grappling with, as we think of the constant failures, as we've seen, we've seen them in the last few weeks in First and Second Samuel and now on into First and Second Kings and Chronicles, as we were at the Lord's table just a few weeks ago. At that table where we find grace for sinners in the Lord Jesus, the one who is the true bread, the manna from heaven, the true one from whom flows living waters to quench the thirst of his people. So what hope is there for stubborn, disbelieving, angry, arrogant people? Well, the answer is there is Christ Jesus and all his bounty. We mourn, we repent, for those times where we have misconstrued our relation to God, we mourn that doubt, we mourn that discontented anger, but as we come, we remember that the same Lord who stands ready to meet his people. We come to Christ Jesus in his word, we come to Christ Jesus in all his splendor and grace, and there we find pardon, and there we find mercy, we find grace upon grace, and we find satisfaction for our souls. May the Lord bless to us the ministry of his word tonight. Let's pray. Well, truly, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.